0: This is an All Ears English podcast, episode 1976, Three Benefits of Like, with linguist Valerie Friedland.
1: Welcome to the All Ears English podcast, downloaded more than 200 million times. We believe in connection, not perfection, with your American host, Aubrey Carter, and today's featured guest coming to you from Arizona, USA. And to get your transcripts delivered by email every week, go to allearsenglish.com forward slash subscribe.
0: You've probably noticed that English speakers say like a lot, but you may not know why. Today, linguist and author Valerie Friedland joins us to break down the word like and why it's actually a positive and useful speech marker.
2: Need to hire,
0: you need indeed. We're very excited to welcome Valerie Friedland on the episode today. Am I pronouncing your name correctly, Valerie?
3: Yes, Valerie Friedland.
0: Excellent. Welcome. We're so happy to have you here. I'm going to give just a little introduction to our listeners, first of all, and then I'm going to have you share one fun fact about you. So be ready. Be preparing that. We're excited to get to know you a little better. So for you guys out there, this is so exciting today. Valerie is a linguist and an author of the new book, Like Literally Dude arguing for the good in bad english so i know you guys will be very interested we talk about and think about this a lot right how often we say like or literally or dude and is that okay so we're going to talk about this today she's also a professor of linguistics in the english department at the university of nevada reno and she writes a popular language blog as well on psychology today called language in the wild and Valerie has appeared on NPR, NBC News, and CityCast Las Vegas. So we are so lucky to have you here. Thank you for joining us. And yeah, well, I'm share thrilled to be here. Uh,
3: okay, well, this is actually a little known fact. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever admitted this, but oh, nice. uh, my plan- when I was in college, my Southern accent almost derailed my career plans.
0: Oh. Give us a little so that- more detail. First of all, great vocabulary derailed, which can mean just like a train is derailed. And that would is a terrible accident, we use this idiomatically to mean throw something off ruin something. So what happened? How did your accent almost cause this huge problem for you?
3: Well, for those that aren't familiar with the southern accent, I don't have a very strong one, but I do have the southern intonation pattern, which tends to be a little more sing-songy than a lot of other regional dialects in American English. And I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, so I do have that, which I think is a very charming quality in most cases. However, I had decided I was going to be a Chinese major because I loved languages and I thought Chinese was a really cool language to learn. And my, you know, my first year I had a drill master that would come once a week and he would make you practice your pronunciation and, you know, he would listen to me and every single time he'd say, Valerie, you sound like you're singing Chinese opera, not saying Chinese words which I took as a hint that maybe Chinese was not the language for me. Interesting. <laughs> so that had... sounds
0: like a compliment to me. Uh, I want <laughs> to be able to sing Chinese opera.
3: <laughs> well, if, if that had been my choi- chosen career, right. but if you've ever heard, hear, heard me actually sing, it probably wouldn't have gone so well. But mm, uh, I definitely, <laughs> I don't know that I would have been that successful at that. So I thought, well, I need to find something else. So uh, I didn't end up pursuing Chinese. I did take it for several years, but my Southern accent definitely interfered with my ability to make Chinese tones.
0: Oh, that is fascinating to think about how our dialect, our accent can make learning a language more difficult. I know a lot of you listeners out there have found that, right? Depending on your first language, there are things about the grammar or the intonation that are more difficult. So I have a feeling there's some solidarity from our listeners with you there, Valerie, because it can it can really complicate language learning.
3: Absolutely. And it really did um, sort of make me sad because I wanted to learn and do well as many people do when they're trying to learn language. And sometimes you just face more obstacles than other people, depending on the background. Linguistically, you're coming from, sometimes you have a better match. In the background languages, if you're coming from a romance language to learn a romance language, for example, or sometimes you have an accent that interferes with the tone system like I did, but I feel (laughs) you.
0: Yes, right. Absolutely. So would you say that that experience was sort of a lot of what um, led you into linguistics or was there sort of another catalyst for that?
3: no actually that really was one of the main um, reasons i ended up getting into linguistics partially because i sucked at chinese but also because as part of my major as a language major at georgetown which is where i went to university Mm -hmm. in washington dc you had to take several linguistics courses because they also believed that understanding the structure of language it's not not only how to speak a language was really important and even though Chinese wasn't maybe the ideal match for me, when I got into linguistics and started learning about these really fascinating aspects of language I had never thought about before, I mean, we don't learn linguistics very often, I realized that was really the path I wanted to pursue. And especially when I took a class called social linguistics, mm. which was all about how language intersects with your social identity and how facts about who you are and how other perceive you to be can really affect the way that we both talk and the way we understand other people. I, that sort of shook my world and I decided this was what I wanted to study. Oh, that's so fascinating. That, that and the fact that it gave me five more years in school before I had to actually get a job, that was really the catalyst. <laughs>
0: Gotcha. Right. That can also be right practical reasons always. Have right. An effect. So we I'm excited to get into this because you have started doing sort of a deep dive into something that's really interesting for both native English speakers and those learning the language, which are some misconceptions about modern English speech. That, you know, sometimes there will be um, something that someone sees as very negative or is like their pet peeve, but there can be positives about it. I'm excited. To get into that. So, we are going to have Valerie share three misconceptions about modern English speech habits. So, let's get into this, Valerie. Can you share the first one with us?
3: Sure. Well, this one is a big one because it's so prevalent across even global English, not just American English, but particularly also in American English. And that is that we don't like like. And what I mean by like there is that little like that sticks in, not as a main verb or a noun or a preposition, but as what we call a discourse marker. And I would say this has taken its fair share of shade in American English, um, as well as it's spread outward because people think it's random and chaotic and it's meaningless and it sort of signals that you don't know what you're talking about or you don't have much to say. But that's a really negative view of a feature that's actually very positive and does have a place in English and it does have a place in helping us project a certain sense of our own self and our own own opinions and our own evaluation of things, which is really important, especially when we interact conversationally.
0: Okay, I'm excited for you to give us a little more detail about this because I do know that um, it's interesting how from one speaker to the next, we all of us will say like some, but some say it so much more. And so it is seen sometimes as distracting from our message if we're hearing it so much more. So would you say that in all cases, you know, it can be a positive or what do you think?
3: Well, I think it's like ice cream. A little bit is really good. A moderate amount is probably fine. If you overdo anything, it's annoying. So that can be okay, true. that's fair. <laughs> right? <laughs> if and I am a big fan of ice cream. So to say that is saying a lot. That's something. <laughs> right. I think, you know, any word that we choose, I had a friend that used to always say tasty. So every time we'd have some, that's so tasty. That is really tasty. So, so, so tasty. And it started to get on my nerves because it was really how she described everything is, oh my gosh, that's tasty. And it started to annoy me. And there's nothing wrong with saying something is tasty, but when you say it so much that it sort of uh becomes all people hear, then that's never a good thing. But I I think a lot of the fault of that is not so much in the speaker but in the listener. We have started to demonize like. And so the more you say you don't like something and the more you talk about it as a negative feature, the more you actually bring attention to it and that's something called we we call the frequency illusion, which is The fact that once you notice something, you notice it everywhere. But before someone pointed it out, you didn't even notice it. So part of that is not that people are using it so much, but that we are noticing when people use it because we've been told it's a bad thing.
0: And we've been told
3: it's meaningless, but it's absolutely not. There are actually some really important functions that light can serve.
0: OK, so briefly, can you share what are those important functions? I think you are right that we as listeners of the English language can sort of hyper on that word, especially if a speaker is saying it a lot. And I think if we knew the positive functions, maybe we wouldn't, as you say, demonize it as much and it could um, be more positive.
3: Absolutely. And I think also for non-native speakers, because you might not understand the function it's serving and it serves several different ones that when you hear it, it just sounds like it's stuck in there because it's no one has ever explained how it's distributed. And so I, I'm, like, I'm going to unpack that a little bit for listeners Perfect. so that they not only understand that it does serve a function, but what those functions are. And if they're in a conversational setting, a little light goes a long way to making you seem sociable. And actually we have some research that supports that. It's not always perceived badly. Now, do you wanna go into a job interview and use it? Maybe not, but do you wanna hang out with your colleagues and use it or even in an informal conversation context to sort of break the ice and make people feel comfortable, I think it's actually a very good thing in that way. So let's dive into the first way that we tend to use like and uh, to make this a little more fun. I actually listened to some episodes of your podcast in the past and pulled out some examples of like because I love how you exemplify some really positive, not you necessarily, but your podcast exemplifies some positive ways that like can be used in a conversational setting. Um, so the first way that we see like used non-traditionally, and by that I mean not as a verb or a noun, is as a approximating adverbial, which is a very big word for basically where we would otherwise use the word about. And this is often when you're going to provide an estimate, estimation or approximation of something that you don't want to firmly state because you may not know or it may not really matter in that setting. Um, so you often hear this before either ages or the cost of something. So you might say, oh, it was, a, it was about $5. You could also say it was like $5. And those are not ones that tend to bother people that much. And we actually see those to be pretty widespread. And even in a more far- formal context, I'm not sure you'd get called out for it because it does have a one-to-one substitution with about So the example from your show is one where um, you were talking about creating playful adjectives uh, using a Y. And I think the word that was being discussed is making stalkery from the word stalker, Uh, which means to (laughs) to basically follow people in a kind of creepy way. Uh, So someone was describing how there are these celebrity home tours in Hollywood and how it can be a little stalkery. Uh, but they say, luckily, you're visiting like 25 stars homes. You're not just visiting one, and so in that case, it was a similar use of like as you would put it in about. So you could have said, "You're visiting about 25 stars homes," but that's less conversational. And in fact, research shows that younger speakers people under 40 in general, tend to use like instead of about. And so about is kind of dying out in that. And I think as we go through the aging process and we age out the about speakers, like will be very, very common in informal contexts. Well, it feels
0: much more informal, right? It's more... Yeah, you're building that connection by being a little more informal. It does sound a little formal to say there were about 20 homes, whereas if you throw in a like, there were like 20 homes. And I agree with you. I think that's one that doesn't really stand out because it's a direct substitution, wouldn't probably annoy anyone. So interesting. It's I I, I doubt a lot of our listeners or even native speakers have thought about how there are multiple different ways to use like.
3: Absolutely. And I think that's why people think they are so widespread in our speech, because there are so many different likes.
1: corollas and more when you visit buy a toyota let's go places
3: um, another form of like that's actually very frequent and i think the one that takes a little more heat in the ha- hallowed halls of english uh, classes is the like that is a sentential adverbial and again when you give it a fancy name like that it makes it sound so much better but people don't like this one because it's usually the like that people stick in at the beginning of a sentence. Yes. Uh, so its purpose is really to link what you're about to say with either the topic that was brought up or, and previously discussed or the directly previous sentence. And it also indicates that you're providing sort of a subjective take on what was just said. So you're sort of saying, hey, this is something like what? i mean this is something like what we're talking about this is an example it basically is as an example only a little less formal Uh, so an example i pulled from one of your previous podcasts was again from that same episode talking about stalker stalkery which are of course fabulous words to have Um, and it was talking about when that word is used and the it was the first sentence was we could do a whole episode on that one like sometimes we use it more as a joke and like sometimes it's more serious So you can see in that case where you had that like that linked Mm -hmm. what was about to be examples with the previous statement about doing a whole episode. So it's a linking kind of like, and obviously it does actually have a purpose there. So it's not a bad like, but because it's stuck in at the beginning of a sentence, it becomes a little more noticeable and people say you could get rid of it and it doesn't change the meaning. So it doesn't mean anything. But in fact, it has a meta message. It's not actually the content of the sentence itself that's important. It's the message. It's telling a listener about the content of that sentence, if that makes sense.
0: Yes. Okay. This is very interesting because that is, I think, where people start sometimes maybe getting annoyed because we have it at the beginning of a sentence before each clause within a sentence. But that's a really good point that and also it does... Add more that connection that when you're linking your ideas, when you're being more informal, to have that link in that like in the middle of a sentence as well. So it really does serve that same purpose.
3: Absolutely. And this one is called a discourse marker. It's in a category of English that we have, you know, where you say, you know, or you say, I mean, or Mm -hmm. so or well, as either sentence starters or sometimes even in the middle, you might have a, you know, in the middle of a sentence. And what they do is they build connection. They are the sort of conversational greasing of the wheels uh, and they make us a little more approachable and likable. And if you actually look at research that compares people that are not using discourse markers to people using discourse markers, you find that the impression of people that use discourse markers tends to be better. Of course, you might wanna be careful about which ones you use in which context, but in general, it actually is a positive trait to be more conscientious of the listener in your speech.
0: Interesting. Okay, give us the third way that, you, that we use like. And then stay tuned, guys. We're going to share where you can find out more about Valerie, the book she's written, because I have a feeling there's a lot, right? There are a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of detail. And I, I love this take on it that like, instead of thinking negatively about um, some of these speech markers, that we can have more of a positive take on it.
3: Absolutely. And we should be able to flip that script because there are so many good reasons why people do these things or else we wouldn't do them.
0: Right. Uh, Absolutely.
3: My favorite like is actually this third like, and this is a completely different like, and this is called quotative like. So I don't know if you've ever covered quotative verbs in general in your podcast, but a quotative So this is when we
0: were like, I said, like, instead of I said something, I was like, I was like,
3: yes. (laughs) Exactly. That's right. So, a quotative verb is essentially a verb that introduces either a direct quote, so something someone has actually said, or internal dialogue, which might be something mm-hmm. someone was thinking about saying. Now, the really interesting thing about the verb to say is it implies somewhat a direct quote. When you, said, when you say something, there I am using say, when you say something like John said I couldn't go to the party, then your listener assumes that it is in fact what he said. That is exactly a verbatim quote. The problem is, is we don't always just talk about what people actually said. We might talk about what we were thinking or what they were thinking, what they were sort of expressing, but maybe not in a verbatim sort of way. And say doesn't really portray that fact very effectively. So what we find over the last 50 years is that we've come up with new ways to express these kinds of sort of subjective takes on what people said. And it's not just the verb like, be plus like, you also have things like he goes and then I went um, and I'm all. He was and all. He's all. Yes, he I was say all. that a
0: lot. He was all. Yes. And then and it's a really good point that often we don't remember verbatim the quote. So we sort of need another way to share. I'm saying, you know, roughly I'm paraphrasing what he said.
3: Or a lot of times we use it. What we find is uh, like is actually as a quotative used most often with the first person pronoun, which is I or we, because it is expressing your internal thoughts about something. And if you look at research on when it's most distributed, when we most find this shift, it does seem And when you look at narrative. So if someone telling a story, they often say, well, they said, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, blah, blah, blah. And it actually seems to help us shift perspective. So it's signaling to the listener, this is a shift here. A different character is speaking. So it actually adds to dramatic tension in addition to allowing us to take different perspectives and provide an evaluation. So if I say John said X, I can't tell you whether he was actually saying that or if he was just thinking it or what kind of evaluation he was putting on it. But if I said he was like, I don't think so. What that does, is it provides sort of an evaluative, subjective sense about what someone was saying. And it allows a little more of that sort of playful storytelling uh, alongside this shift in perspective. So it's actually a really lovely feature that has arisen in English.
0: Interesting. I love that to think of it. I think even my own perspective shifts when I, I think of it as a lovely feature instead of, you know, taking in some of what we've heard that's more negative about the word like or or some of these things that we hear it's interesting how that can really shift your perspective and very healthy i think so that we have more of a positive take on the way others
3: speak and well, the way I we think, speak i think learning about the facts behind something can always change the way we think of it a lot of times we've learned to have these negative attitudes without really understanding why we have these negative attitudes Absolutely. we've just been told here's a bad thing we don't really know if it actually is And with speech, it tends to be the case that because we often take a prescriptivist approach to learning about language, we are only getting one perspective. The reality Mm -hmm. is linguistics has been around for centuries and it provides a very different perspective, a scientific one on language. And so if we actually look from the linguistic scientific perspective and we look at what research can tell us and what studying those speech features can tell us, we have a very different outlook um, and one that's generally more positive. Now, one fun fact about quotative like is I was looking through some of your episodes to see if I could find an example. And this is actually one form of like that you don't use, your your episodes don't use very often. Probably because when you give examples of what people said, they're verbatim examples or they're examples of what someone should say. So you don't want to put a subjective take on it that it wouldn't be appropriate to use like in those contexts. So this is a really good example of the fact that this like does have a very specific niche purpose in English Mm -hmm. that isn't always served even by people that might use like in other contexts.
0: Oh, so interesting. I love that you've done this sort of deep dive about specifically like, right, and given us these misconceptions about these three different ways that we use like. I know there's a lot more here. Give us a little about your book and how our listeners can find you online for more information.
3: Oh, sure. Well, the book is, as you mentioned, called Like Literally, Dude, and the subtitle is Arguing for the Good in Bad English, because as you can see from our brief discussion, that's essentially what I do. And it is really a survey of all these speech features that we have these preconceived notions about that are based in sort of fallacy and um, rumor, but not in scientific fact. So I look back at the history of how they've developed. So where did they come from? Because a lot of people think they just appear as sort of marks of English, but most of them have centuries old history. So for example, like first appears as a discourse marker in the 1700s. So it's not the Valley Girls of California. It is actually a British feature. So that I think is fascinating. Um, there's a lot to like in, in that, that yes. chapter. But um, it also covers things like using literally, non-literally, and um, how to use singular they, and whether um and uh are actually good or bad features of our, of our speech. So I take a historical and a linguistic and a scientific approach to unpacking All the things these features offer us and then looking at them by stepping away and saying, how do they fit in in this larger picture of how language evolves over time and how English has changed? And then the really fun thing is looking at who drives language change. And it's usually the people you don't expect. So I'm going to leave that as a teaser.
0: Oh, interesting. Definitely. okay. And tell us where can um, we get more information online? Do you, you have a podcast, right?
3: Um, I don't have a podcast. No, but I do do a blog. So a I do blog, a blog. That's right. Right. With um, psychology today, you, the online version, um, and it's called like language in the wild. It's not like it's called language in the wild. And you can just sort of search it up or you can go to my website, which is just valeriefriedland dot com. And that's Valerie V. A. L. E. R. I. E. Friedland F. R. I. D. L. A. N. D. Dot com and I have all the information on my new book and where you can get that, which is pretty much anywhere books are sold, as well as access to some of the articles I've written in a variety of, of um, journals and magazines as well as psychology today. Awesome. And then f- finally, last but not least, um, I'm going to have an article coming out in psychology today in the print magazine in May. so if you're interested in that magazine, you can pick that one up on newsstands.
0: Awesome. I'm so excited you joined us today. This is, it's given us something to think about. I have a feeling this is sort of new for listeners, a little new for me to think about like, what are, why do we say like, what are the positive aspects and all of the different ways we use it. So really interesting to think about. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today, Valerie.
3: Absolutely. It was so much fun to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. See you next time.
1: Bye. Bye Bye-bye.